Blog Talk Radio. God bless you all 
happiest moments that I'll ever know were once upon a long time ago. Eastern family and friends. This begins the first of many episodes that we will be broadcasting each week. We've titled the series Memories of a Great Airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories by former Eastern people and friends of this former airline. Your storytellers will be reading stories found in the many publications, the Eastern publications, from 1927 until today, as we receive recall memories of those sending us their stories to be told on the air. The radio show is part of the Eastern Airline Radio Show and the Airline Radio Talk Show, which is done each Saturday at 1 p.m., The same listening tune-in is still blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. And as you would listen to the talk show heard on Saturday, except the new show will be broadcast on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No need to call in as it is pre-recorded, which is what we call podcasting, and usually runs about an hour per each episode. If you miss the broadcast at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you can always listen at your convenience by clicking on the episode number. Mr. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be the initial storytellers, but Others will be joining the show as we continue to go on air. Harry was a former Eastern employee in the pilot scheduling department. Neil was a pilot based in Atlanta. The show was created to fill in the gap of Eastern Airlines memories that the airline radio talk show does not broadcast to the extent it did for the past 11 years. Highlights of the show will be sent out each week via Facebook, on the Internet. You can also find the content in the archive with a description of each broadcast. In addition to these great stories and memories, we will insert the Eastern TV and radio ads from the 40s to the very last commercial run by Eastern. We hope you enjoy both the stories and Eastern commercials. Now, let's start the show with this first story as read by Harry Lindquist. Harry? Anyone who worked for Eastern, and especially worked with the public, has a story about celebrities they dealt with. This story is from the book, The Wings of Many. The story is by Kit Geraci, just entitled Elvis. 
It was late summer of 1975, and we were completing our shift at Hartford. Tom Murphy, our supervisor, was asking three people to work overtime after our shift. None of the crews felt like taking overtime. We had finished our flights and managed the overnighters. He kept asking but got no takers because he didn't have full details on the amount of overtime or when the unscheduled flight would arrive. He called me into his office and said, KJ, I need three of you guys to stay or it's going to be forced overtime. I asked him why this was such a big deal. It's Elvis Presley's private plane. I almost jumped out of my chair and said, okay, I'll stay and I'll get Fast Eddie, Dave Tremera, and Uncle Howie, Howie Fox, to stay. I called them both outside and told them to take the OT, and they asked what's the big deal, and when I told them, they almost tripped getting back to tell Murphy they would stay. All the other guys were wondering, but punched out and left. We had to have ground power and air stairs ready for when the plane called in. Finally, after midnight, the plane called in, and we were headed for the air wrap freight area. There were state police cars and limousines there, lined up. Then we saw the plane approach. The tail lit up with spotlights illuminating the large letters TCB, which meant taking care of business. The plane landed and taxied to the freight area. Once they parked and we had their power checked, we stood waiting to see Elvis. The Memphis Mafia deplaned first and stood at the bottom of the stairs. The state police and limos pulled up. Then Ellis's girlfriend, Linda Thompson, who was Miss USA, deplaned. She was wearing a light brown hot pants outfit and got into a limo. Then Elvis appeared. He came down the stairs, met the dignitaries, talked, and posed for pictures. Before getting to the limo, he looked around and saw us standing there and walked toward us and said, Are you the guys taking care of my girl? Nodding toward his plane, Belisa Marie. We said yes. He shook hands with all of us and said we could go up and check her out, then got into the limo and left. The pilot gave us a tour of the plane, and then we went back to work. It was a great moment and now a great memory. The neatest thing was that this aircraft had its own portable ground power unit in the front cargo bin. The inside of the plane was totally plush, fit for a king. And now here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. This was a Convair 880 he purchased from Delta Airlines. Uh, Elvis took great pride in this plane. He did all the redesign of the interior. And he purchased it in 1975 and named it after his daughter, Lisa Marie. It cost the king $250,000 at the time, which would be about $1.2 million today. However, refurbishing brought the total cost to more than $600,000, which would be almost $3 million today and was completed in November of the same year. The interior was modified with elegant sleeping quarters, a penthouse bedroom with a custom queen-size bed, an executive bathroom with gold taps and a gold wash basin. It even had a videotape system linked to four televisions and a stereo system with 52 speakers. The plane could carry a maximum of 29 people and Elvis could even make use of a conference room on board the aircraft. Moreover, his wife, ex-wife, Priscilla Presley, also had an input on the interior design of the plane. Elvis reportedly also picked out fabrics, decided on color schemes, and chose the onboard audiovisual system. He even approved the 24-karat gold fixtures in the bathrooms and was apparently especially excited about 
the fact that the same design team had previously customized Air Force One. Elvis also referred to the plane as the pride of Elvis Presley Airways and my flying Graceland as he jetted about the U.S. on tour. Uh, you can discover all the information about the Lisa Marie online, including videos. But also, you can actually go visit the Lisa, Mar Lisa Marie. It's uh, on the Graceland property in Memphis at Graceland. Hey, funny face. Hi. Guess what? I'm going out of town tomorrow to the sales conference. Out of town? Can't they send somebody else? No, honey. It's my big idea about the conveyor. Well, can't you send them a letter? Uh-uh. Or a phone call? Smoke signals? No, honey. It's my idea about the conveyor, and I've got to be there to present it in person. It's a big opportunity. I know. I'm very happy. Got your tickets? Eastern Airlines. When will you be back? Same day, tomorrow night. Oh, you mean you'll be home tomorrow. Yeah, Eastern has a schedule where you go in the morning, come back in the evening. Oh, honey, they're just going to love your idea about the conveyor. I love you. <laughs> Eastern Airlines has same-day return schedules to many cities, including Chicago and Atlanta. Eastern will fly you to your business meeting in the morning, then bring you home for a goodnight kiss. Wherever you want to go, call Eastern and ask. Getting home is half the fun. Come fly with Eastern. This article is titled Extra Curricula. It's written by Robert Norris in the Newswing March 1934 issue. The pilot of an airliner occupies a position that is comparable to that of a ship's captain. His bridge is a control compartment of the airship up in the nose of the great wing craft of which he has charge. From this compartment, the pilot directs everything pertaining to a flight. He is allowed wide latitude in making decisions and is in charge of the crew, which consists of a co-pilot and hostess. The opportunities for an air skipper to use his judgment have been numerous. For a number of unusual emergencies have arisen in the past. Although air travel is the most youthful member of the transportation family, there are definite traditions of the air just as there are of the sea. To make your run on time, to keep your passengers comfortable, and to preserve life and property when emergencies arise. In the early days of the airmail service, radio facilities were developed for aircraft Several occasions arose where pilots used their night mail planes as flying fire alarms. Eugene Brown, an Eastern Air Transport pilot, sighted a blaze in the little town of Fountain Inn, South Carolina. By diving and circling over the burning building with his motor wide open, he succeeded in arousing its sleeping occupants and a number of neighbors who helped extinguish the fire. Richard Merrill, another night pilot on the southern run, got himself into a particular position for a short time because of the tradition of the air. He discovered a fire in the city of Richmond, Virginia, and roared down over it. His swift-moving plane not only awoke the occupants of the burning building, but of, never, of nearly the entire city. 
The police department was swamped with calls of protest and sent a squad of officers to the airport to arrest the offending pilot. But the next morning, the newspapers carried the story of Merrill's service to the city, and the airport was in turn swamped with calls of praise. There was a public banquet attended by several thousand persons, a hero's scroll, and many speeches extolling the virtues of the airmen who nearly went to a cell for a night. While flying along the coast on the run to Miami, pilots are in a position to notice anything unusual that is taking place beneath them. Frederick Schwamal, while piloting a plane along the route, spotted a small yacht turned broadside to the waves and rolling dangerously offshore out of sight of the Coast Guard station. He flew out over it and several persons on board waved frantically to him. Shomal swung his plane around, roared at full speed back to a Coast Guard station, banked vertically around it, and then sped back to the spot where the boat was in trouble. The guardsmen caught the hint they launched a lifeboat and struggled through the surf. Schwamal hovered overhead long enough to see the rescue take place, then passed quickly out of sight. A passenger plane was caught aloft by a cyclone that had done serious damages in Alabama and Georgia, and the manner in which the pilot handled this emergency was an excellent demonstration of airmanship. The storm struck suddenly, having veered without warning from the direction it had previously pursued. Terrific winds began tossing the airplane about. Pilots and passengers looking down could see roofs fly off buildings. The buildings themselves collapsed and trees uprooted and rolling away. The pilot was a bare 20 miles away from the Atlanta airport when the storm struck. Yet, in the face of the great wind, it took nearly an hour to reach it. While still in the air, battling his way towards the airport, the pilot made all arrangements for the landing. He ordered a crew of 30 men to line up on the runway at a certain point. He directed that a tractor be brought out and another crew stand by the hangar, uh, the hangar doors. All of this done by radio. When he arrived over the airport, he flew the plane in the face of the wind, ranging up to 85 miles per hour. He cut his own speed to match that of the wind and settled almost vertically down on the ground. The ground crew jumped vertically, jumped on the wings and tail of the craft, the tractor was immediately attached to the landing gear, and the plane was brought to a position in front of the hangar. Here the passengers were taken out and escorted to the waiting room, while the crew at the hangar opened the doors and assisted in getting the plane inside. Experience, the world's greatest teacher, has taught commercial pilots innumerable valuable tricks. Their regular training combined with the added schooling and, and that can only be acquired by actual practice has established within these pilots 
a resourcefulness that is able to cope with almost any situation. Since the days of the ancient Mayans, one thing hasn't changed. When Mexican people celebrate, Mexican people dance. You can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. This article comes from Newswing of Eastern Air Transport Incorporated. It was published... May 1930. Our good friend and pilot Dick Merrill has acquired two new mascots, one of them a lion, the other a groundhog. The lion has ruled over his array of pets for some two months now, but the groundhog is new. And so far as we know, this is the only flying groundhog and the only flying lion existing. The groundhog is, was captured near Baltimore by field manager Jones and flew first north to Philadelphia, then south to Richmond to join Dick's lion, dog, flying squirrels, and other pets. The pilot assures us that the lion is a peach of a pet, but the flying squirrels are still very wild. He takes the lion, or to be exact, the lioness, and the dog for long walks and rides to the amazement of Richmond's urban and suburban population. The queen of beasts is quite a docile and beautiful creature, possessing a strong attachment for the dog. They play together for hours, but sometimes she playfully gives the dog a, a blow that sends him sprawling. But the wilder than lions flying squirrels, well, Dick is waiting for the new generation so he can rear them to be good mascots like that first one he had, which took French leave.
travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Most of us remember our days at Eastern with great fondness. A great job, great benefits, lots of interesting co-workers. But there were some days, well, maybe we wish we, we would have stayed in bed. This is one of those stories from Repartee, the 2009 winter edition of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Whether you worked the ticket counter, gates, ramp services, whether you were a pilot or flight attendant, you had at least one, if not uh, several, of these days. When you mix a complicated machine, fickle weather, and all the moving parts of an airline, things can and do go wrong. This article is entitled, The Rest of the Story, as related by Captain Ray Davidson. It was July 17, 1986. Flight 562 left Mobile, Alabama on schedule, arrived in the Atlanta area on time, and was to hold southwest because of airport congestion. Only the cockpit crew had to change planes in Atlanta. By the time we arrived at the gate in Atlanta, our connecting flight, 141, was already 30 minutes late. The first officer and I then had to pack up our personal belongings and walk to the other side of the terminal. The weather at Atlanta on July 17, 1986 was clear and 99 degrees Fahrenheit. I thought it was rather warm in the terminal, but I was unprepared for what I found at the airplane. The passengers had been sitting on the plane for nearly an hour. In order to get rid of his or her problem, the gate agent loaded them up and made the following announcement. The reason your flight is delayed is because the pilots have not shown up for the flight. During pre-flight, I discovered that 3,000 pounds of fuel that had been ordered before leaving Mobile was missing. This was held for load seats and had been done several times before by somebody in operations named John. The first officer called the fueler back and we got our fuel. Meanwhile, one of the flight attendants came up front with a tray carrier problem. I went to the rear to investigate and found the door would not latch closed. There was a small problem with the carrier door swinging open. It was blocking the rear cabin door from opening and being used as an exit in the event of an emergency evacuation. The flight attendant had called maintenance and was told they couldn't do anything about it. I called maintenance and they taped it closed with duct tape. It appeared we were now ready to depart. We called for a start. A signalman arrived with no headset and waved his arms, so we started the engines and called ramp tower for back out clearance. Ramp control told us to hold our position. The signalman was giving us frantic signals to back out. When we didn't move, he threw his wands on the ground and walked away. At this point, the departure was about one hour late, and I felt like I was going to pass out from the, the heat. Sweat was running down my neck and soaking my shirt and running down my legs into my shoes. I knew I would have a heat stroke if I didn't get some fresh air. I had to get off the airplane and see for myself what the holdup was. I shut down the engines, opened the cabin door, and put the stairs out. There, right behind us, an airplane was stopped holding for a gate. When Ramp Tower cleared us to reverse out of the gate, we got a signalman with no headset again. However, I was in no mood to delay the flight any further by insisting on proper voice communications with a ramp. We backed out, called ground control, and were cleared to taxi. 
We had a short hold at an intersection, and since there were no other aircraft in sight, I made a short announcement to the effect that we would be taken off as soon as we reached the runway. The cockpit door opened. A flight attendant popped her head in and said, We have some people who want to get off. We returned to the same gate that we had just left, and one adult male exited the plane. I asked the flight attendant where the others were, and she replied, Well, I guess he was the only one. That was the career-breaking straw. I gathered my belongings, tipped my hat, and walked off the plane. I didn't get very far before the heat and stress took its toll. It was very warm in the gate area, but my legs were about to give out, so I sat down for a few minutes. Then I got up and went directly to the crew schedule and asked them to send a pilot out to take the flight to Miami. Next, I went to the men's room, changed out of my wet clothes into dry socks, underwear, and shirt. I then went to the ticket counter and bought a first-class ticket to Miami. I drove home and was greeted by my wife with, What in the world did you do? I had no idea what she was talking about until explained that the three national television networks had turned it into a huge news story. The passenger who had exited the plane in Atlanta called a news agency and gave them an embellished account of the incident. I understand he then decided to continue to Tampa on the flight. I was called in to talk to the chief pilot, Frank Causey, and to my surprise, was treated very understandingly by him and upper EAL management. I know most people thought it was funny. Mark Russell, the piano-playing political humorist, wrote a hilarious song about the pilot who couldn't take off. There were a few who blamed me for the demise of the airline, but I feel I was somewhere between the two extremes. And that, as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story. couple of service bulletins from the early days of Eastern Air Transport. For most of us, we've seen lots of big changes in our lives in airplanes, automobiles, communications. Do you remember your life before computers, before cell phones? Do you pilots remember life before advanced navigation systems? Well, from the repartee book, here's a couple of uh, operations bulletin. The first one is service bulletin number 26, dated October 15, 1931. Baggage, responsibility of. On ships carrying co-pilots, the co-pilot will be held responsible for the checking of all baggage on and off the planes. The back of form EAT number 27 will be used temporarily. On ships not carrying co-pilots, the pilot will check the passenger's baggage on and off and make a report on the back of form EAT number 27. 
They will also inquire prior to the time the ship leaves if a passenger has all his baggage and is properly tagged. Signed, C.H. Dolan, Operations Manager. Then there's service bulletin number 41, dated October the 15th, 1931. The title is Pilot Expenses. Due to misunderstanding regarding pilots' expenses while away from their home, the company in the very near future is engaging hotel rooms at various stops and on and after a certain date, at which time the interested pilots will be notified, their expense advance will be discontinued. This is not being done to work a hardship on the pilots, but some measure of economy on the part of the company. Your cooperation is urgently requested in seeing that these rooms are maintained in first-class condition. Any claims put in by the hotels for breakage or losses will be assessed equally among the pilots using these facilities unless the party responsible assumes this responsibility in writing. You are expected to conduct yourselves as gentlemen at all times and be a credit to the company. So please endeavor to treat these rooms as you would your own home. Sign C.H. Dolan, Operations Manager. Next, we have Service Bulletin number 52, dated January 20th, 1932. Subject, Blind Flying Between Washington and Newark. There will be no blind flying in condors between Washington and Newark due to heavy traffic in this area until such time as our radio communication system has reached a higher state of reliability. Over-the-top flying is all right with a good radio and clear fills ahead. Sign, C.H. Dolan, Operations Manager. Then we have service bulletin number 53, dated January 20th, 1932. Subject, seatbelts, pilots and co-pilots. All pilots and co-pilots will wear their seatbelts at all times when flying ships. C.H. Dolan, Operations Manager. Then service bulletin number 54, dated January 20th, 1932. Subject, passenger pilots leaving and approaching fields. Passenger pilots are getting lax once again in their methods of leaving and approaching fields. We have continually warned pilots about essing and side slipping and banking at 45 degrees and 90 degrees on their turns and rushing into a field and then remaining on the field for 15 minutes because they are ahead of schedule. This is lack of thought and must be corrected. C.H. Dolan, Operations Manager. Let's take a plane, laugh at snowstorms and rain To Miami, where life is so gay You fly from Boston In the world of passenger travel, progress was also being made By the close of 1934, it was from frost to flowers in just eight hours This reduction of almost six hours over the old flying time was made possible when 14 new DC-2s, the first of the famous Douglas DC series of aircraft to be used by Eastern, were placed into service. One of the problems that had to be solved in order to attract passengers to the airlines was to develop an airplane on which people would want to travel, an airplane that would be both fast and comfortable. The Douglas DC-2 met this criterion. This comes from the Eastern Air Transport Incorporated News Wing, a division of North American Aviation, dated October of 1931. Condors fly to Atlanta and Jacksonville. Beginning October 1st, 18 passenger Curtis Condors were placed in service 
between New York, Atlanta, and Jacksonville over the Eastern Air Transport System. These luxurious planes formerly flew only as far south as Richmond, with smaller Curtis Kingbirds connecting with them there. The Condor's largest planes in service in the United States will operate three times weekly to the points south of Richmond, with Kingbirds alternating to make the daily service. Thomas B. Doe, president of Eastern Air Transport, completed an inspection to Atlanta in mid-September and immediately after returning to his Brooklyn office announced the extension of Condor operations over this section of the airway. He then took off on a tour of cities along the coastal route to Jacksonville and after this survey, decision was made to extend Condor service there also. The cities affected by the change of policy are Greensboro, Charlotte, Spartanburg, Greenville, and Atlanta. And on the coastal route are Raleigh, Florence, Charleston, Savannah, and Jacksonville. The Condors will increase the facilities by 100% so that 148 seats will be available weekly instead of 70 on the southern routes. I am not one to be converted to air travel, for I am a great booster for that mode of travel, wrote Newell E. Carter of the law firm of Redfern and Farrell of Miami. This summer, I had the pleasure of going via the Eastern Air Transport System from Miami to Washington. I also made the trip from Jacksonville to Miami via your airline. I consider this one of the most beautiful trips due to the fact that you have such diversity or diversified scenery, beginning with the Atlantic Ocean and pine forest, and in a short time changing to the semi-tropical part of the state, combined with beautiful lakes, rivers, palm hammocks, and the famous Indian River orange groves. For Harry Lindquist and myself, I'd like to thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you'll come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the archive on the Internet about 15 minutes after broadcast, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, same way that you tuned us in to listen to tonight's episode one. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest to be broadcast. If you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you'd like to share with others, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's E-N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. 
We're recorded and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with this familiar theme music of our great airline, Eastern. Good night to the Eastern family. See you next week.